standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to the second of our Sunday Chops. If you haven't listened to the other episode already, when you finish this one, you know what to do. In that Chops, Mick and I go up to Middlesbrough to meet Jennifer Cassily to talk to her about some excellent work that she's doing regarding young people and consent. In this episode we are talking to media expert Holly Powell Jones. Now if you've listened to our podcast from this week already you'd already have heard from Holly because we were talking to her about some work she's been doing with some young people about how they can avoid getting themselves into legal bother when they're online. And so while we had her we thought well young people aren't the only people that can get in trouble online. We've asked her as she's an expert in media law to put together some tips for how All of us could make sure that we don't get ourselves into legal hot water when we're on Twitter, when we're blogging, when we're podcasting. She's got loads of great information here, so listen out for that. If listening to Two Chops this week isn't enough, we've got loads and loads and loads of good stuff that we've released recently. A conversation with the historian Dr Fern Riddell about immodest women, the Victorian's attitude to sex and also the suffragettes. We've also spoken to author A.L. Kennedy recently, and we did five special podcasts based around International Men's Day. So I'm just going to stop talking and let you tuck into this great chat that we had with Holly. Hello, Mickey here, just popping in to let you know about our last gig of the year. That's right. If you listen to this on Wednesday, you missed our Tuesday gig, which was The Men. And December the 16th sees normal service resuming with some cracking birds. We have got Lolly Adafrope, we've got Felicity Ward and we have got Laura Bates at Leicester Square Theatre, 7 o'clock. Grab your tickets, easily done. Just go to our page on Sarah's website, www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. See you there. Hi, we've been joined today by journalist Holly Powell-Jones who is an expert on media law. A lot more people are able to put information into the world, blogging, podcasting, all sorts of things. Sometimes my teeth go right on edge when I read some of the things that people put on Twitter or people put in their blogs. So I thought it would be great if we could tap your brain and be helpful to people on how you go about not ending up in court or in trouble. Can I do a disclaimer first? Yes. If you do, don't blame Holly. I have to do a disclaimer because I am not a lawyer and I'm not allowed to give legal advice. So Mm. that is my disclaimer. I'm a trained journalist. I've got a qualification in media law. I've got a PhD where I've looked at media law online. But I'm not a lawyer. Don't sue me. You're Dr. Media Law. Yeah. Well, I haven't had my Viva yet, but fingers crossed. Very soon. You can certainly stop people falling into some really common traps. I would hope so. So What I have is come up with some examples of times that people have fallen into some very easy traps to fall into. And perhaps we could talk through where they've gone wrong and how people listening can avoid making that mistake. All right. Okay. so I'm going to start with the actress Tina Malone. Are these real? They're these not are fake. Real. These They're are not real. fictional. They're not fictional. Goodness me. Fact, uh, the, fact actress, the actress Tina Malone in March was approached by the police because she had tweeted a photograph which she claimed was a current photograph of John Venables. Oh dear. The, the Bulger killer. When the police visited her, I had to write this quote down because this is something for journalists amongst us. She said, I didn't have a clue it was illegal. What are you going to do? Prosecute me for posting a picture? 
Well, yes, Tina, that could happen. <laughs> oh, that kind of thing makes me really upset because I think contempt of court is one of the real basics when you train as a journalist that yeah. you get drilled on. It's about ongoing police investigations about court cases and also about people who are given court uh, orders protecting their identity. And that is the case with Ben. I just think it's so weird that that's something that's such a foundation of media law when you train as a journalist and yet all other social media users don't get told about it. So yeah, that is that is a really serious offence. If you're identifying somebody who has been given a, a right to anonymity, and that might be by a court order, like in the case of, of this, but some rights to anonymity are automatic as well, and people just don't know about them. And I do think it's really harsh that, that ignorance isn't a defence for some of these things. You do know. you? Do you think that's harsh? I do think that's harsh. Interesting. Yeah, because I think... Why would you know that teachers who are accused of crimes against their pupils but haven't yet been charged are entitled to automatic anonymity under the Education Act 2011? Like, how would you know that unless somebody had told you? Uh, Another thing that falls into this in the Ched Evans case... Of the perpetual naming of the uh, woman involved in in that case. If other people aren't naming her, official organisations aren't naming her, then there must be a reason. I feel very strongly about this. I actually made, uh, when I was doing my radio, I made a little documentary about victim blaming culture because of that case, because of what I was reading about this woman being published on Twitter. Um, And I think there were, at the time, I think there were about nine people who were arrested and charged um, with naming a sexual offences claimant, uh, which is a, a criminal offence under the Sexual Offences Amendment Act 1992. And uh, not one of those people knew that they weren't allowed to do that, that that was illegal. Um, really? I, well, I mean, you could use your, yeah, you could say use your common sense. But I also, I am, I mean, this is why I do education on social media law, because I do think there are some things that are quite complicated in law, or it might be very, very simple. But if you've never been told, how would you know? And I think also, like I said, it's, it's very much about, like, kind of social cultural norms. If all your friends are doing it, if you're seeing it on your Facebook feed, if all the people you follow on Twitter are doing something, you might then assume that it's safe to do. To add to that, though, sharing a post in which people have named, for example, the woman in the Ched Evans case or the real identity of Maxine Carr, mm. et cetera, et cetera, people with protected identities, that also gets you in trouble. You don't need to be the person who is naming them, do Absolutely. you? Absolutely. And it's funny because that's kind of the same for uh, libel laws as well under yeah. the Defamation Act. You don't. I, I always have this uh, saying with, with the kids when I talk to them, which is you don't have to have said it. You just have to have spread it. And it's it's true. I like it. Do you rap? I know, yeah. Hey, that's my next thing. Actually, that's probably the quickest way to put teenagers off me, right? (laughs) (laughs) Turn Moody Law into a rap. Most of these offences, it's about the distribution, the publication, and how it's being shared rather than who actually initially said it first. Okay, I have another example here. Uh, The late Peaches Geldof was investigated by the police in 2013 for naming on Twitter the two women... involved in the court case of Ian Watkins, who had allowed their children to be abused. Now, I know this comes from a position in which people, why are they allowed to get away with it? 
why aren't they being named? But they were being not being named for a very specific reason. Yeah, it's it's because of what we call uh, jigsaw identification. So certain people are granted anonymity, as we've talked about, and that includes children who are victims of crime, um, particularly sexual offence victims as well. We've already mentioned. So if it's a child sex victim, it's like you really cannot identify them. You don't have to name somebody in order to identify them. So jigsaw identification is the idea that if you give out certain bits of information, where they live, what job they do, who they're related to, that could allow someone to piece together the bits of the jigsaw and work out who they are. So if you've got child abuse victims where there's been abuse, they they often won't name relatives that are involved because that would then inadvertently potentially identify the child as well. Okay, well, sticking with Ian Watkins, I think this has to be one of the most staggering mistakes I have ever seen, a media publication. You two clearly know what it is, because I could just hear the reaction. A media publication used. E! Online, forced to apologise back in 2013 for using a photograph of Ian Watkins, but not the Ian Watkins. They used a photograph of H from Steps, whose name is also... Ian Watkins. It's a tragedy. Poor man. It really, it oh, really is. Sorry, steps that joke. Was steps such joke. A, that was such a terrible What pun. a time to be called Ian Watkins. Eh? <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, there isn't really a lesson to learn from that other than the blatantly freaking obvious, which is make sure you're using the right photograph. Check your sources. Yeah, check, check, check. I think this is... So, that. I mean, that's potentially a libel risk, isn't yeah. it? Because you've used a photo of someone and attached it to this horrific crime and these allegations where actually it was nothing to do with them. So that is a huge risk. I actually think that's one of my big bugbears is that um, not just ordinary social media users, but actually quite a lot of journalists are so desperate to be the first person to get the story Mm. out that they will look for and grab any information, any images that they can offline. And I mean, that's really just about making sure you've checked your sources really carefully and just really double checking everything before it goes out it's better to be late than horrifically wrong yeah there's there's a massive danger there as well in that the way that news spreads or information spreads these days which is like a wildfire you can retract it you can apologize but you're going to have a certain set of people who have seen the initial thing not the second thing and will be going no smoke without fire yeah yeah yeah, that is so true as well. And I think it's just, it's the association, isn't it? It's hard to come off. And um, again, there's things like, you know, if there's publications that are posting that as well, potentially somebody who could Google the case might get an image of poor old H yeah. from Steps straight away. And like you say, if they, you know, they might not even realise there's an error and make it make an assumption there. So yeah, poor old H. Yeah. Poor what old age. About? Did you get any money for that? I don't know. I, I think he got. I an think apology. I think he took the apology. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was very generous, spirited of him to just accept an apology. Yeah, I do accept that. That is I, so I th- much part of the culture to just try and be first. Well, it? I think perhaps what he did then was he just wanted his photograph separated from the photograph of yeah. him. And if it goes on and on and it ends up in court or whatever, mm. his name will always be associated. When you Google him, it's always going to come up mm. with that he was involved in mm. some way in that case. Mm. It kind of always is, isn't yeah. it? That's the, I mean, we're sorry, I'm sorry, it. H. Sorry, H, if you are listening. I've got another case of mistaken identity here, which is the Katie Hopkins trial. Oh, this is my favourite. Back in, I believe it was 2016, Katie Hopkins mixed up Jack Monroe and Laurie Penny 
and ended up defaming Jack Monroe, and mm-hmm. it cost her a lot of money. It cost it, her a house. It, mm. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I mean, this is this is classic. She should have she should have learnt from the Lord McAlpine Twitter libel case. Yeah. You know, um, it's you can libel people on Twitter. And the big mistake that Katie Hopkins made wasn't just in making the allegations about the wrong person in the first place, which was obviously stupid, but what was more stupid is not retracting and apologising for that straight away because I believe that Jack Monroe did actually give Katie Hopkins the opportunity... Oh, yeah. Several times. ...to withdraw that, apologise, and I think... And donate some money. Make a donation yeah. to a chosen to charity. To a charity, yeah. And um, Katie she ended Hop- up making a huge donation oh to Jack Monroe, didn't she? And instead, Katie Hopkins kind of said, "Oh well, you're all the same anyway. You're all <laughs> what does she call a social anthrax or something? Oh, I can't God. remember." But you know, um, but I think it she was she doubled down. She did, and it was a bit of a terrible to error, I, I think. Yeah. Um, Could so, you yeah. run us through? You mentioned the Lord McAlpine case on Twitter. Mm. It might be interesting or useful for people to have another example. Could you run us through that one? Sure. Yeah. So I think it was around 2012 um, when there were allegations of uh, child abuse um, amongst some senior politicians. Mm-hmm. There was basically a mistaken identity there, where Lord McAlpine was implicated as a paedophile. Um, which was untrue but as you said that things spread so quickly online and basically the whole of Twitter was um, perpetuating this rumour that he was a child abuser and what happened there was um, it was the wife of the speaker Sally Burko who said why is Lord McAlpine trending and then she did little asterisks and she said wink face and that was enough to get her sued for libel. So even though she hadn't been explicit about the allegations, she'd suggested that she was in on a joke. If she just tweeted, why is Lord McAlpine trending? She probably could have defended that as a a genuine question. However, because she put that wink face in, it was seen to be pointing social media users to the defamatory allegations. And if you point people and direct people to defamatory allegations or um, breaches of injunctions and things like that, you can also get in trouble. So yeah, she can ask about injunctions. How does that work? If there's an so they you can have an injunction in this country, but for example in Scotland or Ireland or whatever, you're allowed to publish it. Yeah. So then it's all online. Yeah. How does that work? So if you live outside of the jurisdiction of where that injunction was made, presumably you're fine to tweet it but you're not... How does that work? I think you're absolutely right in that you've hit the nail on the head in terms of this is seen as a huge contradiction in Mm. the digital age. And a lot of journalists and media organisations are quite outraged that Scottish journalists can publish something that they are restricted from publishing, you know, just across... I mean, some people would say that these kinds of injunctions are completely pointless in a digital age because it's I mean it's a bit like with the um the Google right to be forgotten ruling yeah. um, I mean that's only applies in Europe so if you use google.com as opposed to google.co.uk you can end up with different results so that seems I think for a lot of people trying to draw these clear lines of, of uh, geographically of boundaries and jurisdictions is really problematic when you've got a global digital environment. And of course, with super injunctions, the the, the ones that have been brought down recently yeah. have been brought down by parliamentary privilege. Yeah, yeah. Which is something very particular just because Lord Hayne 
said it in Parliament doesn't mean you can sit in your yeah. at your kitchen table and say it. Can we revisit defamation and just explain to people how you go about defaming someone? Yeah, so defamation basically means when you defame someone. So essentially, you ruin their reputation. Um, for an individual, it's got to be publishing or, or spreading something that causes serious harm to their reputation or is likely to cause serious harm. So, I mean, if somebody was like, oh, Holly sometimes is too lazy to wash her hair, so she uses dry shampoo instead. Like, I probably couldn't sue for that. I don't believe that. Your hair looks gorgeous. (laughs) Thank you. Glossy. (laughs) Thank God it's radio. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you said something very serious, if you alleged that I was involved in crime um, or that I'd abused my position for personal gain or that I was a liar about something, these kinds of things is where it gets quite dangerous for, for defamation purposes. And what's really important to remember about defamation defamation is that if you've published a statement and it goes to court and someone tries to sue you the burden of proof is on you you have to prove that it's true they don't have to prove that it's not true if that makes sense yeah, yeah. um so you have to basically be pretty sure that you've got evidence that will hold up in court if you're going to make seriously harmful I mean, that, that's why it's kind of difficult when you're talking about something that, for example, the word racist. Mm. Like, if we were about to say Katie Hopkins is racist, you I know. I think you'd be justified. I firmly believe she has to have had a reputation to be not racist. We used to have this thing called fair comment, and it's now called honest opinion. And that is a defence to libel claims, which is basically... When did Fair Comment change its name? I don't know. I don't know, because I've got Fair Comment written on a bit of paper here. It's it's, it's actually because the Defamation Act um, 2013, it's now called Honest Opinion. I'm not really sure. It's had a rebrand. Don't ask me why. They're just trying to make defamation sexy again. Um, But yeah, so no, they've... um, You do have some defence if it's something that is... The reason why it's called honest opinion is basically if you're reasonable and an honest person and that is your genuine opinion, you could cite so many examples of Katie Hopkins yeah. making racist statements and that would provide you with some defence under honest opinion for those kind of comments. I think what you do have to be careful though, I think Frankie Boy- Boyle actually sued a newspaper for calling him racist comedian Frankie Boyle a few years ago because he tells racist jokes jokes as part of his stand-up but he was contesting the idea that he is a racist and he won actually right in the end so i think it's just about context isn't it it's just about context and 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 in which somebody's saying something yeah if we're on fair comment i'm going to stay with fair comment for a bit because i don't call that anymore hannah i'm sorry it's called honest opinion opinion. (laughs) reviews now if you're running a If you're running a blog, a podcast, and you're reviewing food, you're reviewing film, everything you say has to be true. You've got to be able to back it up. There is no room for exaggeration. The waitress was a fucking arsehole. Yeah, I think you're you're almost in trouble in terms of, I think, actually in terms of harassment and stuff with things like that. I mean, I've, I've spoken to businesses who have had actual campaigns from groups of trolls to write really horrific stuff about their organisation, about their staff and whatever. Um, and I think there's a point where, you know, you could, there's libelous content, but there's a point where it can tip over into being quite harassing, particularly if it's directed at an individual as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it basically boils down to the principles of, of good journalism and good media skills. You know, yeah. I always say to my journalism students when we're doing media law and ethics, you know, let the facts speak for themselves if you're passing a, 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 an opinion and a judgment, 
that's that's one thing but it's sometimes it's more powerful to be like this happened this happened this happened she said this he did that and let the listeners in the audience draw their own conclusion about that person's character because that's where it gets a bit dangerous in terms of libels when you're doing character defamation basically when i worked at metro newspaper and i worked on the life section so it was sort of arts and food the one thing that strictly always went to the extra legal level was the restaurant reviews really yeah because you can you can fuck up a business you can fuck someone's livelihood i think as well it's also about weighing up risk right who is likely to actually sue you that as well yeah because really that's the other thing as well so uh, again i would say the more famous and the more wealthy you are the more likely you are to be bothered to bring a defamation case against someone, I imagine. Um, And again, most individuals don't know anything about media law and wouldn't even know that they necessarily had rights to do that. But I think, yeah, when you get kind of up the food chain to the the bigger businesses, um, the more egotistical individuals, they are perhaps going to be a little bit more jumpy in terms of protecting their reputation. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Lance Armstrong successfully sued a newspaper for doping allegations. Oh, my word. And then, obviously, it turned out that he was a doper. And that kind of thing, I think, is really, really interesting that somebody could... and And again, like, not to be too dark, but people like Jimmy Savile would use threats of libel lawsuits quite often when people wanted to critique him. Yeah. And um, so we do have to be careful to try and keep in check balancing the individual's rights to having their reputation, you know, not unfairly trashed. But at the same time, libel law shouldn't be wielded as a tool for the rich and powerful well, to look shut at Trump. everyone else. But it's different in the States, isn't it? Isn't it the yeah. other way around where you have to prove that... Well, that's why people come over here to mm. hold court cases Libel tourism, yeah. they call it. Yeah, they're Absolutely. trying to crack down on that. But yeah, in America, because it, it's a different jurisdiction, they're really all about the First Amendment mm. and the right to free speech. And that seemed to, no pun intended, trump uh, everything else, you know, kind of in terms of yeah. uh, communication laws. Whereas here, we're a bit more... And on the continent in Europe, we're a bit more cautious. And interestingly, a lot of tech companies have started to say, you know, perhaps they're recognising that they're American companies and they may have been a bit culturally insensitive to the ways that Europeans think about things like privacy, about libel, etc., copyright, versus how it is in the States. So maybe there'll be some changes there, mm. I don't know. I have another example. This isn't a tweet. This is a friend. I'm not going to name him, but a, fr- a friend of, of the show. His mum runs a blog Aww. and uh, received a cease and desist letter from Reuters um, because she had been using one of their photographs. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and now my advice was take it down immediately mm. and never do it again. And that seemed to do the trick. I think copyright is one of the most complicated and misunderstood areas of media law. I know it's not as serious, perhaps, as some of the others, but in terms of being so easily misunderstood, um, we definitely need to do better education on copyright. When I go into schools, my students are absolutely horrified. What, I can't just take a picture off of Google Images and publish it on my blog? I'm like, no, 
No, you can't. Mm. That's actually not okay. Oh, right. No, but I've, what if I say where I got it from? If I say I got it from here, I'm like, yeah, if I go and take a pair of trainers out of a Nike <laughs> store <laughs> and I don't pay for it, but I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. I'll tell everyone that I got it from Nike. <laughs> They're not going to accept that. It is stealing. You can't use other people's, except for uh, uh, there are some exceptions. But aside from those exceptions, you need permission to use other people's creative material. And normally cold hard cash as well. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I would always say, look, ask permission from whoever's photo or music or whatever. Ask permission because if the if the creator gives you permission, that's effectively a license. And that means in law, that's quite solid. You've got you've been granted a license to use it with the exceptions to copyright. And there are a few. They can be contested in court. So if you're relying on an exception, which means you think, oh, I don't need to ask permission because, I don't know, it's for educational purposes or it's parody or whatever, that can still be tested. Whereas getting permission is always the safest way. And um, I mean, I say to my journalism students also, just take your own photos. Yeah. Then you're fine. Yeah. But if it says... Reuters or Alamy or something on it. They, they have software, don't they? You, that can yeah, find, this, yeah, it's a big money maker. You know, there's lots of. I think um, Getty Images were particularly heavy on this kind yeah. of thing a few years back. Um, I actually quite like what Getty Images have done. They've now got an embed tool, so they've sort of acknowledged that their photos are amazing and people want to use them. And I think they've now got this tool where I think if it's for non-commercial purposes or or there's some certain restrictions but you're allowed to embed the photos so that means people can kind of use them and share them but without actually copying them and keeps them on the right side of copyright law. But if you're selling adverts on your blog then that's a no isn't it? That's why so copyright is more risky if it's for commercial purposes and actually we have uh, people forget we have criminal copyright laws as well so it can actually be a criminal offence if you're ripping off somebody's copyright for commercial gain um, so it can get pretty serious so let's talk while we're in that while we're swimming in that pool about plagiarism okay um, which is another thing that comes up if you are quoting at length from somebody else I get this all the time because I, or I teach at universities and I've marked essays. And um, yeah, don't, don't do it. If you're a student, don't, don't copy and paste huge, great chunks. We have software. It flashes up like a Christmas tree if you've copied and pasted <laughs> loads of chunks. We will see that it's plagiarised. Sure, we're like that. ninjas, uh, shouted the students. Yes. Yeah. But that the same, if you, are, if you are reproducing somebody else's work on your blog, on your podcast, and it's not your work. Mm. Well, we do have, so we have some exceptions. So there's this thing called fair dealing, which is basically protects your right to to quote, quotation. But the the principles of fair dealing are that you have to, first of all, you can't be undermining the original creator's right to make money from it. Secondly, you have to attribute where it's from. Um, And thirdly, it can't be more than what you actually need. Do you know what I mean? So if you're reproducing an entire book, that's obviously not fair dealing. If you're using a couple of lines to discuss a particular character or an interesting moment or something, it's about not using more than is needed. So, yeah, it's basically about being fair and decent and honest. Okay, so I also wanted to bring up incitement. 
incitement to racial hatred, incitement to violence. Yeah, so it's section, it's part three uh, of the Public Order Act 1986 uh, that covers this. So inciting uh, hatred, violence on the grounds of race, religion, sexuality is a crime. And again, uh, that's about the distributing of the material that does that. Um, And I think it's really important to mention as well that we have got legislation that covers these as aggravating factors. So you might have a basic offence, like, I don't know, threatening or harassing communications or whatever, but then if it's if it's also kind of racially or motivated by racial hatred, then they can basically whack an extra load on the sentence. So it's worth bearing that in mind as well. It's about how they categorise crimes, isn't it? Like the, the level of severity of the crime. Yeah, basically. It's, yeah, so yeah. we have we so we have hate crime legislation, mm. um, but my understanding from someone who actually lectures in this area is that it, it can be quite difficult to get juries to convict of hate crime, uh, standalone hate crimes, and so um, sometimes what they will do is they will charge with the basic offence, um, and to, in order to secure a conviction, and then they will add on essentially the the racial aggravation element. An example that I used from my uh, research with the students, which was I would say a pretty classic extreme example of, of inciting racial violence, which was so one of the tweets I gave the young people was an apologies for any offence. I'm sick to death of. Gurkhas round here, they deserve to be shot, they lie, they steal, they abuse their kids, let's get them out of, you know, our town or whatever. That is that is something that is very clearly inciting hatred and violence yeah. against people on the grounds of their nationality, mm-hmm. skin colour, etc. Um, what was really worrying, though, is that a lot of young people did say things like, well, that can't be illegal, and when I said why, they said, well, because I see stuff like that all the time yeah, online. That's not great, Which is, is really depressing, actually. And I think that's there's, there's a stark warning, actually, to lots of tech companies, I think, and people who manage these sites is the, the tolerance and the, the toleration of some of this horrific content is actually potentially contributing to the idea that it's not breaking any laws. Yeah. That yeah. We can't have any laws on this stuff. Um, so, so that's really that is really disturbing. But yeah, we do have we do have laws about about racist material and extremist material and inciting violence. Hello, I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a, a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause. You could consider giving it to us and you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women. Thanks very much. And the other thing that I wanted to talk, which is actually much more of a moral issue, as in there aren't laws about this, is the Samaritans have produced a series of guidelines on suicide reporting. Now, I don't expect everyone to know this because I have to say, quite frankly, almost every organisation, even big newspapers, I've seen broken them quite regularly recently. What are the things that you have to watch out for when you are discussing suicide online? Well, I think first and foremost, the language is really, really important here. Um, We try to avoid saying things like 
committed to suicide, um, which suggests that it's um, a crime still, which it isn't, um, or things like... um, uh, we don't say uh, things like successfully attempted and things like that because that's suggesting that that's sort of uh, it's framing it in a sort of way as in uh, uh, yeah it's really never mm. a success. Um, so you have to be careful about language like that. What what we tend to say is somebody has died through suicide or that somebody has taken their own life because that that language is more appropriate. It's really important that we do not as well go into too much detail about methods as well and even things like locations um, we're not supposed to talk about things like suicide hotspots etc um, because they have actually done studies and shown that when there is an increase in reporting about methods or places it actually affects um, real life suicides um, that media reporting so that's why you have to be really really careful about about those things um, also, I think that the, the main thing that I remember as well is trying not to jump to conclusions about why somebody might have taken their own life because that sort of contributes to the idea that it's a, a sort of something that's inevitable if you have these kinds of problems. You know, when they say, oh, you know, if they say, oh, we just got a, a divorce and they'd lost a custody thing and they had money problems, it sort of contributes to that idea that that is a, a, a an inevitable or a logical outcome and it never is a logical or an inevitable outcome. Um, and, and finally, and probably most importantly, I would say any mention of suicide, you do need to highlight that Samaritans exist and highlight their support number, which I'm hoping you've got written down here now. Actually. I have, Seeing a, but as we're we talking can, about it. we can certainly. But it is very, put that it's very important, yeah, that we make sure that whenever we're talking about suicide, that we always signpost that actually Samaritans are there twenty four seven. They're very well trained to deal with this. I actually did a documentary about reporting on suicide a few years ago for BBC London, and I think Samaritans are a fantastic organisation. And so these are really, really difficult things to talk about. But I think the media's got a great opportunity to actually um, also send a, a message to people saying, "Look, we we know there is help out there, and if you need help, there is someone there who will always answer your call and always be there for you." And so, yeah, making sure Samaritans' number is there is really important. So I just had one last thing to say, which is I wondered if you had any tips on what I can only describe as cleaning up your social media account. Uh, The the best advice seems to be if you think that your views might have changed on things or that you've held objectionable views in the past that you go through and clean up your account. I have very mixed feelings on this. I'm going to be honest. I, I... I, Toby Young. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually, my tweet about Toby Young ended up on the front page of the BBC story. Hilarious. Really? Talk about being careful about what you put on Twitter. <laughs> my tweet was literally mm. on the BBC News article about Toby Young, and I was I was quoted like the first tweet up there, and I thought, oh gosh, it's kind of more real when it actually happens. Yeah. <laughs> you think everybody tells you, you know? But so cleaning up your social media obviously is a good idea. I also... I mean, not being racist in the first place is probably the better idea, idea, isn't it? I think it's about, yeah, trying to think before we publish. My concern, obviously I'm biased because I work with young people, and what I think is slightly unfair is so our younger generation are going to be the first generation to publicly and permanently document all their life, Mm. all their thoughts, all their interaction between 
being a child and becoming an adult. It's fucking terrifying. It's, I am so glad I didn't have to It that. is terrifying. And I think if we all had a permanent public record of all the stupid fucking shit hell. we said as yeah. a teenager, we would all be in trouble. Our, one one or another. Our brain has evolved so that it actually deletes traumatic stuff so that we can get over it and get on with our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Facebook and Twitter and social media hasn't caught up with that idea. Well, I mean, I was I was about to say, let me be clear. I sound like a politician if I say that. Uh, let me be clear. Um, I I think racism is always wrong. Homophobia is always wrong. Sexism and misogyny is always wrong. Prejudice is always wrong. I think that we have to be aware of the culture and the society that young people are growing up into, and they will be exposed to some pretty horrible views and and stupid views and ideas Mm. and they may reproduce those Mm. in the form of their tweets when they're growing up Um, it may be that they genuinely hold those beliefs it may be that they're trying to show off in front of certain groups of people there could be all sorts of reasons I'm nervous about a future whereby the only people who are allowed to be successful and hold public office and have public lives and be a success are people who have a squeaky clean social media. Because they are going to be either the people whose parents just kept them off it for the whole of their childhood, which is problematic in certain ways, or it's going to be people who've got the money and the technical know-how to pay for these reputation management cleanup operations. And I think... I, we, we kind of we talk about this a lot actually um, amongst kind of other sociologists as well. The line of what we're willing to forgive and what we're willing to move on from is never going to be fixed. It's always going to be different amongst different people. Um, but I would say that we do need to keep having that conversation. Somebody might have smoked weed at university and there might be photos and video of it on the internet. Does that mean that they should not be allowed to become an MP? for their local area when they're older. I'm not sure that I think that is fair or right. I actually think we need to be looking more at people's character and their attributes kind of, um, and and also just accepting that human beings are all works in progress. We are all working as we go. Obviously, like I say, we're going to disagree about what is and isn't forgivable and at what stage and how much time has passed and who's affected and all of those things. I'm not saying let everyone get away with it. I'm just seeing... It as a norm for teens now to publish every thought that comes into their head yeah. somewhere. They're like an online diary, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. yeah, completely agree. Absolutely. And I sometimes think somebody who's recognised where they were yeah. and where they are now, um, like you say, can be a good role model. And, and that that is really, really important. I don't like the idea of a teenager having literally their life ruined because of something stupid that they said online yeah. you know, when they were still a kid. Um, so, yeah, it's trying to get the balance right, really, isn't it? Um, the cleanup software sounds amazing, though. Can I have it? What is it? I mean, I don't so know. I, I, I think I kind of and... made that up in my head. <laughs> Just... but I'm pretty sure it will be out there. It should be um, called wipemeclean.com yeah. or something. I don't know. That's a, that's yeah. a very different product. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's niche. different kind of website if you're going to Google um, that one. Guys. Well, and I that. don't believe that that software exists. I think the cloud or someone somewhere will always have all of our data. Holly? This has been most interesting. I hope it's been useful for people. Don't get sued. If people want to get in touch with you, 
Yeah. Do you want people to get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'd love people to get in touch with me. <laughs> okay, yes, how do they do, do that? Do you want people to get in touch with you? That do was I, so tentative. Do well, I want case, people don't are want like, people can I go this? back can over the this? last eight years of my tweets yeah. looking for horrible things? Please don't do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, of course, I'd love people to get in touch with me. So uh, I run two Twitter accounts. I've got me, I'm Holly underscore PJ, um, but I also run one for my work, which is at Online Media Law. Uh, and my website is onlinemedialawuk.com. Brilliant. <laughs> That's quite a complicated little ending to a website. It, it is. UK.com. I know, I know. I blame Squarespace. But yeah, I'd, I'd love people to get in touch with me, particularly if you think your students, bloggers, journalists could do with some online media law training. Um, we've got some excellent juicy case studies, even juicier than some of the ones we've had today. So yeah. Perfect. Lovely stuff. Thanks Thank very you. much. Hannah here again. As we mentioned earlier, if you need to contact the Samaritans, you can call them on 116123. That's from the UK and the Republic of Ireland. They are there to answer the call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Standard issue for all women.